Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 119 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have survived a big snowstorm. We did. We had some snow and wind. I know in Guilford, we had 11 inches of snow as the official. And then up in Hartford, where Emily is uh, these days, y'all had 13 inches of snow. We got what I refer to as a bucket load. (laughs) There is a lot of snow. It kind of came fast and furious through the night, but absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it sure is. It's gorgeous. And one fun thing that um, we got to do last week was we were asked by Redfin, which is a real estate company, to participate and I guess contributes the better word on a blog post that they were doing about creating a lovely at-home reading nook. Yeah, that was so much fun to be asked to do that. They chose to add what we had to say about lighting, having natural light, and then how to best utilize artificial light. Yeah, it was really fun. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. There were a lot of other fun contributors as well. And, um, you know, just made me want to cuddle up on my snowy day and read even more after doing that project. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, so let's dig in, Emily. So what have you? uh, Well, I guess let's start with what are you currently reading, right? Yeah, I am really like nose deep in this book, Favicon, 4,015 days beginning to end. I talked about it on a video that we posted on our YouTube channel. So it has, I did a little show and tell, I'll show it to Chris again. It's by Magnus Nielsen, who was the chef um, at this restaurant. And I'm speaking about it in the past tense because it has closed. And it was a very incredibly popular restaurant in Sweden, in Northern Sweden. And one of the things they were known for was only utilizing food that they could get locally which as you might imagine in Northern Sweden is a bit of a challenge. (laughs) And the food is very interesting and I'm not really reading it because I want to learn how to make the food that he makes there. It's more for the story he tells about the restaurant and why he chose to close it. So it's filled with all manner of essays that are both about the restaurant and running the restaurant and also, you know, personally being someone who was involved with it and what he's choosing to do now It's big. Jim keeps teasing me about, wow, you really have your nose in a big book. (laughs) I've just been really enjoying it and kind of lost in it. It would make a great gift. It's a beautiful book. The pictures are gorgeous. The food itself, like I said, isn't for everyone. It it isn't a book you would necessarily give someone because they want to cook this food, but um, the story and the writing is really lovely. So again, it's Favicon, 4,015 Days, Beginning to End by Magnus Nilsson. Nice. I'm also reading a nonfiction book. I love a good productivity book. I'm uh, currently reading Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. It's by Jake Knapp and John Zeratsky. And what I like about this book is that, you know, after you've read a dozen productivity books, it's rare to find something new, but you know, one of the things about reading things that you're already familiar with is sometimes people say things in a different way and it clicks in a different way for you. Cause we're never reading the same book twice as we always change. But what I like about their book is they focus on having a highlight for your day. 
because they talk about how you're sometimes you're so busy, you're going through, you know, you're working on a big project or something has caused a shift in your life and everything is new. And three months could go by and you're kind of like, what just happened? (laughs) What did I just do? So having a highlight for each day, whether it's something in your personal life or your business life, whether you're going to spend 10 minutes on it or three hours, you know, it's something that you definitely want to accomplish that day. So to have that highlight, and and again, whether you're going to do it at six in the morning before you leave for work or work on it at 10 p.m. after everybody's in bed, just having that highlight so you can see that you are working on something that you're really passionate about on a consistent basis. How do they recommend you, you know, note it? Like, do you do it at the end of your workday the day before and make a note? Or is it something like you wake up, you get to work and you say, this is the one thing I'd like to highlight about this day? I think it's more having something in mind, maybe when you do your weekly planning. Oh, so Um, you sketch it out. Yeah, you're kind of, you kind of have it in mind, unless I'm conflating that with a, a different I've been watching a lot of YouTubers on productivity as well. So there is a chance I could be crossing uh, channels in my brain with that. But I think it is something more of having a list of things that are important to you, projects and stuff, and then really, you know, making time for it and scheduling it out more than just something that pops into your head. Because I think it's those things that pop into your head that eventually push away the things that we really want to do that are maybe not urgent because urgent things fill our brain and our time. And that's when we wake up one day thinking like, what the hell happened? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think, especially with things like email, you know, like you can spend your whole day just, you know, kind of dodging bullets with things that come into your email stream, but then you forget about, like you're saying the overarching something that you wanted to accomplish or just responding to emails all day doesn't feel like much by the end of the day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, With email, I've always struggled with email, with keeping up with it, whether it's professional or personal email. And this year I had started um, shutting off the automatic email updates. So I have to manually update it, you know, click the little button that says Mm -hmm. fetch email or Mm -hmm. whatever the languaging is. And then the last two weeks or so, I've just been looking at email once a day Mm -hmm. and responding once a day. Yeah, that's a very popular thing to do. It doesn't work for me, sadly, just because of the nature of my work, but I would love that. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing too, is um, Laura and I have been talking a lot about how to structure your days and how to make schedules. And the thing is, is it's not, for, for most people, having something that you set for a year is really not all that practical. And with us, we always have different projects going. So, so much of it is just project-based or seasonally based. And right now is a time when I can do that. Yeah, you know? I think it's great to end a year and usher in a new year reading a productivity book. I used to be really good about reading a nonfiction at, just at the first of the year. So that makes me think I should do a little research and think of one that I want to read uh, come January, which is right around the corner. Thanks for putting that in my head. Absolutely. Yeah, that was Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day by Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky. And I'm reading literally just opened the cover and read, like I always read the acknowledgments and little things here and there, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. 
Cool. This is one that's, it's on a lot of best of lists this year and has, is getting a lot of notice. And when I did a little browse at the Guilford library the other day, there was a copy of it. I couldn't believe it. So I snatched it right up. And this is the story of, it, it takes place during the time of the plague. And it's the story of Shakespeare's son, who apparently the play Hamlet is based on. And Shakespeare's son died at a very young age. And that's about all I know, except I will say our buddy Jana has declared this her favorite book of the year. And she's an avid reader. So that makes me think, okay, I'm on it. That's great. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah, that one's definitely on my list. Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. I've never read think. a Maggie O'Farrell, have you? No. Yeah. Not that I remember. Yeah. <laughs> We know how that goes with our brains. <laughs> exactly. And she's an Irish writer, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the novel that I just started is also by an Irish writer. It's called The House on Vesper Sands. It's by Perrick O'Donnell. It's one of those books that I think is hard to classify in some ways. It's a detective story set in like Victorian England, but it has supernatural elements as well. Hmm. It's coming out January 12th, 2021 here in the States. I believe it's been out already in the UK. I just started it. It's one of those beginnings of a novel where you don't really know what's going on and you're not supposed to, obviously. But it's a woman who seems to be a seamstress that is coming to this mansion and she has to walk up floor flights of stairs with the butler, I think he is, who is old and gnarly and they have a big past together that you don't quite understand so she's coming to do some type of secretive seamstress work and it sounds like she may have done some seamstressing work on her body i was gonna Not say her. that seems like a little dark maybe <laughs> yes very dark yeah the, the brightest part of the beginning of the book anyway is that it's snowing <laughs> I'm really looking forward to digging into this one this weekend. And again, that's The House on Vesper Sands by Perrick O'Donnell. Sounds really good. What have you just read, Emily? Well, I finished Legends of the North Cascades by Jonathan Evison, which I mentioned on the last episode. This does not come out till June 8th of 21. I know that's a long way off. If you're interested in reading something else by Jonathan, I put a whole list of all of his books in the episode 118 show notes. So check that out. This is a, a story of a man who's a father and who served three tours in Iraq. He comes home to Vigilante Falls in Washington state to his seven-year-old daughter and wife, and he's having a trouble getting assimilated back into society. Something tragic happens in the family and he and his daughter end up moving to a cave in the wilderness in the North Cascades. That's a choice. Yes, which his family doesn't support, as you might imagine. But it's really interesting. The father-daughter relationship is really interesting. And I think it's very well written. Jonathan, I follow him on social media and he has three children. Two of them are daughters. So I think he really wrote from the seven-year-old's perspective really well. And also just a, you know, a struggling father and how, you know, the bond that that relationship has. But then the other story arc, it parallels with a mother and a son 
and their characters are at the very end of the ice age. And so they're um, making their way living off the land as well. It's fascinating. The way that he wove the two stories, I thought was really quite brilliant, actually. And and I enjoyed it. And I think folks should definitely pre-order this book. Very cool. What interesting time frames to work with. Yes, very, very. And if you like, like, I would say if you like um, Peter Heller, who we've talked about before, that this would be a good choice for you. Um, a little bit of an you know outdoorsy adventure story, but also with that, the bond of parents as well and trying to make it off the land, you know? But, but like you said, looking at the differences of, you know, they were trying to make it off the land in current day, which is a little bit different, than, you know, back at the end of the ice age, of course. But I really enjoyed it. This is, as I said, this is his fifth novel and um, I've read, I think three of them and I really enjoy his writing. So again, that was called Legends of the North Cascades by Jonathan Evison out June 8th of 21. Well, I'm reading a book by a guy who also has two daughters. This is Hideaway by Jason Pinter. Emily loaned me her copy and I also downloaded the e-copy. It was actually on sale for like $1.99. And I just wanted to lay on my back in a dark room. And e-reader is a great way to do that. So, um, but thank you for loaning me your copy, which got me started. Emily talked about this book. So I won't go into great detail, but it is a really good thriller about a woman who is the mother of two kids, a a boy who's a teenager and a daughter who's a bit younger. I think what she's like, maybe seven or something. I'm not really sure. Um, But something tragic happens to the husband. Longtime listeners might remember us laughing about the guy um, showing up on his front porch in a bag, having been chopped up. Not something you laugh about, but I think the the gruesomeness of it and the shockingness of it, it's sometimes laughter is one of those reactions that people have, not when you're the one there opening it and the son is the first one to see it. So the story deals with the mom dealing with the fallout from all of this. They've moved to a new location and she gets involved in what apparently looked like at first a suicide. And then she does some math and figures out that couldn't have happened as a suicide. And then the police start investigating it. So along the way, though, there's a lot of really touching scenes with her kids, I thought were really well done. And the son is a reader of fantasy books, you know, big, thick fantasy novels. And so is one of the police officers uh, on the case. So they have a really nice connection as well. So it's a really good, it's a thriller. There's good action. Uh, but there's also some, some emotion and connection, which is a nice balance to the gruesomeness that, that happens and some of the, the fight scenes. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book. And it's the first book in the Rachel Marin series. His second book, A Stranger at the Door, comes out on January 12th. And I highly recommend both. Yeah, I look forward to reading the second one. And we have Jason Pinter coming on as a guest which um, will be in a few weeks after this episode. But again, the first one is Hideaway. Jason Pinter, check it out. We both give it thumbs up. Yes, yes. And it has a badass female protagonist. 
who doesn't like that book like that. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the next book I read is Send for Me by Lauren Fox. This comes out February 2nd, so just around the corner. Lauren's an author that I met at Petoskey Booktopia event. And um, we just really hit it off. And I followed her on social media ever since. And when I saw that I could get my hands on an arc of her newest novel, I was so excited. There's a letter in the front from her to the reader. And I just thought I'd read you the very first sentence. Children of immigrants are anthropologists of our own families. We're participant observers of cultures we live in, but that will never quite belong to us. So, yeah, and this book is so fascinating. So she is the granddaughter of Jewish immigrants from Germany. They came to America at the cusp of World War II. And she felt like as a kid growing up, they, they lived in Milwaukee, that her grandparents were very protective of her and very secretive. And there were things that they just never spoke about, but they were very close. I mean, she had Friday night suppers and Sunday night suppers at their house, stopped at their house after school every day. And after they passed away, a lot of the stuff from their apartment ended up in her basement and she found a treasure trove of letters written in German. And when she went to college, she found a German professor who started translating them for her and the process took a year. And they were the letters of her great grandmother and great grandfather to her grandparents, her maternal grandparents. I should say the maternal grandmother's parents is the better way to say it. So anyway, she ended up writing a memoir about this as her MFA, like her dissertation, but she never felt like she could figure out what to do with it in her writing life. So she finally, 20 years in as being an author, she wrote this novel and she actually weaves pieces of these letters into the novel. It's amazing. And it's, you know, a fictionalized account of a young couple with a child who get the opportunity to be sponsored by a family relative who's already stateside and they flee Germany on the cusp of World War II and leave the the wife's parents behind. And so those are the letters that then weave through the story and it just follows the young couple and then it follows the granddaughter in present day as well. She does a fantastic job of weaving the story. And I just wanted to read one quote um, from the book. How could you know the heart of your beloved before you married him? Courtship was a confection. Crisis brought out the best in people or the very worst. But daily life with its accidental farts and blood on the sheets, armpits and burned roasts exposed you to the truth. An inflexible heart or an expansive one, contempt or compassion. She just has lots of turns of phrase like that, that I love she's a a great writer that's so great that just that sentence made me think of different people in my life Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) for sure yeah yeah I mean I have all sorts of quotes in here I won't keep you know reading to you but um there's also a bakery in the story the the uh, grandparents were owned a bakery in Germany and um and I have to say the the arc of the story that takes place in Germany on the cusp of World War II as they 
are losing these, these, you know, this Jewish family is losing their livelihood and their lives as they know it, including their lives together, right? Is just heart-wrenching. It really is. I try not to read too much World War II fiction, as I've mentioned on the podcast in the past, but this one really struck a chord and it's very well written. I highly recommend it. Again, it's called Send for Me by Lauren Fox out February 2nd. And now how did that one cross your plate? Well, I follow her on social media and I mean, she's hilarious. She has a very good sense of humor. She has two teenage daughters. And when I saw that the arcs were available, I got right on it. So nice. Yeah. And then I told her I was reading it and she was like, that's very scary. (laughs) (laughs) So I need to reach out and tell her (laughs) that I loved it. So, Well, the second thing I read was an audio book that was a re-listen I was looking for something kind of on the short side that I wanted to listen to that would be inspirational. And then also something I decided that I'd already listened to because I just didn't have a lot of brain space to absorb new stuff. But again, having that repetition is so helpful sometimes. So I re-listened to Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I think that one came to my head because you have been talking about her podcast. So I have listened to some of her podcasts while I've been, you know, washing dishes or whatever. So when I was scrolling through the audiobooks I already have on my phone, that one jumped out at me as one to re-listen to. And, you know, that's one we both, again, highly recommend as a really good listen. And when you listen to any book a second time, you pick up different things. Yeah, for sure. And that I just have such an affinity for her and how she phrases things makes things very accessible. I think I recommend all of her books actually, and her podcast. Yeah. And you know, what I like about it is that or her work in general is that so much of it is research based. I mean, that's her job. She's very heavily into research that she then presents in a very digestible, understandable way to the general public but she always has examples from her own life, Mm -hmm. you know, like she dares greatly by being vulnerable. And that's what daring greatly is, is being vulnerable, but in healthy ways. And so I always appreciate her own examples from her life. Yeah. Which is, which is great because that makes you feel like the information is actually vetted, not just by the research, but by experience. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's a different way of storytelling that helps, as you're saying, like gets it into my brain, you know? Yeah, for sure. Instead of just reading a researcher's account of of information. Yeah. 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 So again, I don't even know the subtitle. I don't have that in front of me, but it's um, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, audio version, which she of course reads, which is good. Yeah. I finished also on audio, Wintering, How I Learned to Flourish When Life Became Frozen by Catherine May. I talked about this on last week's episode because I saw an event with her. Y'all, this book is perfect for right now for two reasons. We're living through a global pandemic and it's winter, (laughs) at least where we live, you know? (laughs) So I just loved it. The narrator was great. The book is split up into different chapter headings. It starts with the prologue in September, and then it goes um, through March, which I thought was really interesting. There was a February chapter, Chris, that made me think of 
us and where we live on the shoreline because the um, chapter was called Cold Water. And it's where she and a friend start to try to tackle swimming in frigid temperatures, which is something I've, I mean, I do have a dry suit in my first two winters here, I was out paddling in the winter, which is probably not the smartest thing to do, but at least I had a dry suit, <laughs> but I had many friends that were like, you are going to die. So I've haven't done that yet this year, but um, I did have a rule that if it was below 32 degrees, I wasn't allowed to go out. Anyway, I like swimming. I, I mean, I like being on my paddleboard in cold water. I'm not sure about swimming, but my grandfather who lived in Manhattan Beach was in the polar bear club. He swam in the winter. That's amazing. Yeah, he was from Russia. It was his thing. I've been reading some articles about that and it's about, you know, starting slowly and, you know, some people do it without suits, you know, they, they might just have on swim tops or gloves and booties because your fingers and feet are the thing that tend to go first. <laughs> yeah. That's what always brought me in was my extremities yeah. for sure. Right. Yeah. And I had wool socks and, you know, booties and all that, but they get cold. So, yeah. And, you know, one of the main points of this book is to slow down and to contemplate and to be, um, you know, soft and gentle with ourselves about these fallow periods in our lives. And boy, what a great message right now. I totally understand why this book is meeting with such great success. I think it would make a wonderful gift uh, for folks as well as um, for yourself. And this is definitely something I will listen to again. And I think I'm going to buy the book because the fresh only frustration I had was driving down the highway and, you know, like wanting to highlight something, but you know, it's, I'm listening to it. I couldn't right. do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, wintering how I learned to flourish when life became frozen by Catherine May. Well, the last thing I read was a short story. It is a quote, new short story by Edith Wharton. Actually, it's just published for the first time. It's a granted prayer and it was published in the Atlantic, and we'll definitely put a link in the show notes to that. A scholar named Sarah Whitehead had been doing some postdoc research at the Beinecke Library right here in New Haven, Yale's rare book and manuscript library, and she came across this short story that had never been published. Apparently, like scholars of Wharton knew about it, but it, for some reason had never been published. So my book club chose it to read for December. And this one, it's another, it's a satire. It's one of Wharton's satires. That's part of this group of short stories she wrote set in a fictional academic town where she kind of pokes fun at the pretentiousness of the upper class academic set who, you know, they just think they're it. <laughs> um, the other story I read, uh, listeners might remember, was um, Zingu, which starts with an X, that word, Zingu, I think that's how you pronounce it. So this one, it is about a, a group, uh, it's about a professor who has sons who don't turn out the way he wanted them to. And then he, his daughters are living with him and they're always fluttering around him. I think it's actually his two sisters and a daughter. They're always kind of like fluttering around him and reading what he's reading. 
and to try and, you know, be in conversation with him and support him. The sons have all grown up and they're considered kind of like useless. Although by societal standards, they've all done really, they're doing well. Like one of the sons joins the Navy. The other one, I think he's working as a clerk somewhere. The other guy is in investments. And they, they're all considered failures because they didn't follow in the father's footsteps of being this gentleman scholar. At some point in the story, an old friend dies and professor of, in the story gets custody of this boy. He was, you know, kind of like guardian. The guardian, yeah. Yeah, so the story title again is called A Granted Prayer. It can also be, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. it may not what what you think you want may not exactly be what you want and one of the intros I read to the short story talked about how Edith Wharton was also writing a, about the debates that were going on in society at the time about you know the impact of one's environment and biology and free will on lives and in families and whatnot so it's a quick read it's a very short short story I totally recommend it. Wow. It sounds like she packed a lot in there. And I mean, as you're talking about it, it reminds me, I think two of the novels I've read recently are about that whole thing of sons not living up to their father's expectations of who they want them to be, which is essentially being them, right? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, you know, oh, that's so complicated and um, fraught, I guess is the best word, but yeah. Wow. That sounds yeah, really I mean, good. Edith Wharton is such an amazing writer. If if you're out there and you haven't read anything by her, um, she she just really is such an excellent observer of human nature and relationships. And she's just a wonderful writer. Sometimes you don't even like you can't see things being coming at you quite often. Mm. You did, like was it a the Roman fever was that the title of one of the another I read yeah um, that's the last... one that's our buddy Shuley's favorite yes you know like yeah. that one you don't see things coming well I was going to say that's the perfect segue to the next book I read talk about an amazing observer Elizabeth Strout Olive again this is revisiting the character Olive Kittredge, which was the title of the first book. She does not say this is like a sequel. She she refuses to call it that. She just says it's another book. But <laughs> Olive showed up again. <laughs> and oh, she, this, these it's short stories, but they're connected short stories. And Olive Kittredge is the character that pops up in them. When I read um, Olive Kittredge, I read it with my book club way back years ago. And one of my friends said, it's like the Where's Waldo books that you like, where's Olive? Because sometimes she just literally pops up. Like she's in the story because she's at the grocery store and says something to the characters in the story and then walks away, you know, but such a brilliant observer of human nature and um, relationship. Olive is a little bit older here. She's remarried to Jack. And um, there are some stories that deal with her son coming to visit and learning that his mother is remarrying, which is met with some guffaws. <laughs> um, Olive is also just dealing with old age, like having to get what she refers to as poopy panties, otherwise known as depends. I thought the stories were really poignant 
an interesting, she, Elizabeth Strout seems to really like endings. So some of the endings just really took my breath away. But there was a story titled Light that I loved that was about um, the light in Maine in February. Elizabeth Stroud is from Maine, and this story takes place in the fictional town of Crosby, Maine. I'm sorry, the book takes place in Crosby, Maine. And the, the character Cindy is talking about what she would have written if she could be a writer. And she said, what she would have written about was the light in February, how it changed the way the world looked. People complained about February. It was cold and snowy and oftentimes wet and damp, and people were ready for spring. But for Cindy, the light of the month had always been like a secret, and it remained a secret even now. Because in February, the days were really getting longer, and you could see it if you really looked. You could see how at the end of each day, the world seemed cracked open, and the extra light made its way across the stark trees and promised. It promised that light, and what a thing that was. As Cindy lay on her bed, she could see this even now, the gold of the last light opening the world. And if you live like where Chris lives now, light is a big deal. Like you really experience it and feel it every day. And, you know, we're on the cusp of the shortest day of the year, which is no joke up here. We're dark at four o'clock, but very quickly you see how the sun starts to change and the light lasts a little bit longer each day. Yeah, for sure. And it cha- it shifts, you know, on the horizon and yeah, casts different yeah. reflections. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. So I thought she really just nailed it with that um, paragraph. I just, it took my breath away. That whole story I thought was amazing. So anyway, if you were a fan of Olive Kittredge, you will be so relieved to get to visit with Olive again, who's a curmudgeon that we all seem to love. <laughs> Yeah. Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout. Yeah, I have to try Olive Kittredge. I think I started it. Isn't there somebody who's struggling with alcoholism at the beginning? Or am I mistaking it with something else? I don't remember. It could be. Because I think I think I started that one and I just thought, oh, yeah, not in the mood for this one right now. But Mm -hmm. it is still on my shelf somewhere. I need to track it down. Yeah, it won the Pulitzer Prize. And I think it's, you know, obviously for her writing, I also think she got a lot of um, praise and attention for the fact of this idea of connected short stories. You know, a lot of conversation about, is it a novel or is it short stories? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Biblio Adventures. Well, I had two and it was because I was on an Elizabeth Strout fangirl craze because I finished the book and I was so sad, really, because I just love her writing so much. So I watched an interview she had via the Strand bookstore with the author Meg Wolitzer and then an interview with at the bookstore Politics and Prose with the book maven whose name is Bethann Patrick. She's a book reviewer and blogger. And the themes I wanted to talk about was just that she didn't, Elizabeth Strout didn't plan to write this book. She was at a cafe in Norway and Olive literally showed up. Like she was looking out the window of this cafe and she had this image of Olive getting out of a car with a cane and 
walking across the street and she was like, well, I guess Olive is back in my life, you know, and she immediately wrote all of this down and started writing. I thought that was really fascinating. And, and apparently that's how Olive Kittredge first came to her. She was loading her dishwasher and she had this vision of a woman at her son's wedding and feeling like it was time for all the guests to go. Like it was just time for them to leave. <laughs> and that's one of the scenes in all of Kittredge. Who hasn't been at a party where they feel that way? Yeah. So, <laughs> we, so it's always better to go to a party. You could leave. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Hosting is like a nightmare. And then the she did also talk about this thing of people querying her about, you know, is it a short story? Is it a novel? Is it is this a sequel? And she's like, they're just books, you know, like, yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> and also she feels very strongly about her dislike for plot. She was like, even just listen to the word plot. It's a terrible word. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Being someone who enjoys a plot, you know, driven book, but she is really an observer. It's not, these books are not plot driven. They're about observations and relationships. And so it was kind of fun to hear her talk about that. She's just an interesting person. And she she said she thought Olive again was really funny. Sadly, I had read the book by the time, you know, I was watching that. And I was like, wow, I didn't, like, I never laughed out loud reading it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it made me kind of want to pick up a story and read it again. I think maybe what she means is, I mean, she may mean that for sure. And some people might agree with that. But I think she had a lot of fun writing it. Yeah. And fun with the characters. But I didn't laugh out loud at any of the stories. So I was kind of perplexed by that a little bit. But anyway, these are both, you know, things that had already taken place that I just watched. So I'll put the links to these interviews in the show notes. Both of them were great interviews with her. Nice. Well, I missed my Biblio adventure with Jane Smiley. Mm. It was on a Monday and I just was running around doing stuff all day. And then volunteered to do something. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm done with everything. Oh, I'm done early. I can. And then later when I looked at my planner, I was like, oh, I missed it. <laughs> such a drag. I'm so, so sorry. And that was a, you know, paid event. I mean, I only paid five bucks, um, but I, I emailed them to ask if there's a recording. Cause I didn't see one readily available. So I'm waiting to hear back about that. But I do know Jane Smiley is doing some other events out there online that, I'm going to track one down and sign up for it. Yeah, she's definitely on book tour. So um, yeah, that's, I'm so sorry that I have done that over and over again the last six months and it's such a drag. It is. Yeah. Do you have any upcoming adventures? You know, I do. There's one I signed up for just, I think yesterday. It's not until January 14th, but I'll put it out there now. It is Minjin Lee and Jennifer Bueller talking about The Great Gatsby, a new edition that's coming out that um, Minjin Lee wrote the introduction to. So, you know, as Emily and I, I think we've talked about The Great Gatsby in the past. It's not a favorite novel for either of us, um, but I'm really interested in what they have to say about it. And I'm always open to, you know, having my opinion and perspective changed on a novel. Absolutely. And if anyone might do it, it could be Min Jin Lee. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going to, Chris just told me about that one um, right before we mic'd up. So I'm going to get signed up for that too. And then we can report back. Yeah. yeah. You know, and real quick too, regarding the book Maven, 
Mm-hmm. She's the one, she's the person who started the hashtag Friday Reads. Oh, how cool. I had no idea. You're just a font of knowledge, Chris Wolak. Well, she's she's a big, big person in the book world. And um, and I remember when that first started and she would kind of kick off the conversation hmm. with oh, Friday cool. Reads. So and now that's yeah. just everywhere. Booktubers use that hashtag and Instagram. I wonder we should find out what the like when she started it and we could do an ode to her of some kind. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, maybe we can start that. Don't hold your breath, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I just have one upcoming adventure, which is um, because I still don't want to give up my love of Olive Kittredge. I'm going to try to find and watch the HBO series starring Frances McDormand as Ooh. Olive Kittredge. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's funny because when I was listening to the conversation with Meg Wolitzer and Elizabeth Strout, Meg Wolitzer's had several things, I think, made into... Well, I don't know if several, but she's definitely, her book, The Wife, was made into a film starring um, Glenn Close. And she said to Elizabeth Strout, once I saw Glenn Close as this character of mine, I just felt like she completely embodied the character. Did you feel that way about Frances McDormand um, being Olive Kittredge? And Elizabeth Strout said, no. <laughs> which I thought, she's a very short answerer of questions, which is like, kind of nerve-wracking as someone you know we ask people questions and so I'm always kind of like biting my nails but then she said Frances McDormand is beautiful in her opinion and she's like you know Olive isn't beautiful and she's also like this big tall kind of um overbearing woman and Frances McDormand is really slight you know and so she said there were just she said I think she did a great job and that the series is wonderful but no it wasn't as if you know, when she went to write Olive again, she was, you know, picturing Frances McDormand in her mind. So I thought that was interesting. I love Frances McDormand. So I'm curious to, to watch the series. Good. Well, look forward to hearing about that. So upcoming reads, what is at the top of your stack these days? I have a novel that I don't know really anything about, but it came into my queue. Finley Donovan is Killing It by Ellie Cosimano. This is out February 2nd. And it's supposed to be like a super funny, fast-paced mystery series. And I believe she is the author of a YA novel or two or more, I don't know, but this is her first adult novel. So I'm looking forward to that. And then the other one I have is one you and I had talked about as maybe a potential read along and it, it didn't make the cut for that, but it's called Breast and Eggs by Miyoko Kawakami. And she's a very renowned Japanese writer. So this, um, this book was translated by uh, Sam Betts and David Boyd. I don't know why there'd be two translators. Do you? I don't know if I've ever seen two translators listed. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. But um, so it, it's about female repression in Japan. And the title makes me think it probably has something to do with reproduction and things like that as well. So breast and eggs, Miyoko Kawakami, more to report on that. What about you? Well, I have a book that I recently picked up while I was browsing for holiday gifts at Breakwater Books, our local bookstore here. 
celebrating its 25th anniversary, I thought it was time that I give Alice Hoffman a try. So I have practical magic in my hand. Yay, yay. <laughs> I love the cover. It's beautiful. Isn't that nice? It has this big boot. It's kind of like blue with like gold stars, golden white stars. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I thought I wanted to have, uh, you know, end the year with a happy-ish book, you know, something that's fun. And since you've read a Willa Cather novel, it's only right that I read an Alice Hoffman novel. <laughs> I love it. I'm so excited. I love, first of all, I love that you went shopping for other people and bought books for yourself. That makes me so happy. I just can't help it. <laughs> you know, I, I try to resist, but yeah, resistance is futile. It is. It really is. So did you get, so I thought you said you got two things. Weren't you, didn't you say you bought two books? I don't think I did. Okay. Yeah, I, I just have. So your only well. upcoming is Alice Hoffman. Yeah, that's that's all okay. I'm gonna say okay. at this point. I mean, I okay. <laughs> I've been kind of like looking at all of my books because you know, I did kind of go and buy more books this year than I have in recent years. I think just out of that desire to help support bookstores. Mm -hmm. So you know, I've gotten books from our locals and ordered from out of state bookstores. And I just um, need to go through all of them and kind of stack them in some kind of order and to start see reading. like, yeah. yeah, well, like which ones I want to read soon, which ones can yeah. get shelved for future yeah. or, you know, there's even at least one I know that I could easily give away already. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. okay. So, yeah. 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 So yeah. So, you know, speaking of supporting bookstores, I did just see the email from bookshop.org that says they've so far raised like $10 million for independent bookstores across the country that are in their program. That's amazing and so necessary right now. Fantastic. Yeah, really and we is. want to remind people that we're affiliates of bookshop.org now. So you can help independent bookstores and the book cougars. A win-win. And you know, the thing is, bookshop.org the impetus behind that was to have an alternative for people who shop online other than you know the big a as a way to help support bookstores who can't necessarily manage their own online system and things like that so continue to support your local bookstore check and see if your local bookstore is on bookshop.org um, but if you are you know traditionally buying your books online bookshop.org is a is a great alternative yeah and sometimes it's just nice to shop online to ship books to people as well and the one announcement that they just made is they're also starting um, they have gift certificates or gift cards now yeah so also for that hard to buy person who might have a lot of books on their shelves or you just don't know what they're reading or for people like us that just think it's incredibly fun to get a gift card to spend at a bookstore, yes. um, that's a really good way to go. And um, all of the books that we link to now in the show notes go to bookshop.org, including what we're starting to do is um, on our page, you know, you can do lists. And so everything that we talk about that we just read, we're putting in on bookshop.org so you can easily find them and click on them and purchase them if you would like. And then gift cards are also available through um, bookshop.org and the Book Cougars affiliate link. So I will put that in the show notes as well. And don't forget about Libro FM. We're also affiliates with them. If you're an audiobook listener or want to 
get a friend or family member hooked on audiobooks. You can give a gift subscription to Libro FM. I think anywhere from a month to three to six to 12 months, they have different options out there. So you don't have to feel like you have to give a whole year or, you know, kind of take some of the pressure off of the giftee too. Like if they're just getting it for a month or three months, you know, that seems a little bit more manageable than to think like, oh my God, a whole year. Right. Whenever you're starting <laughs> something new. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I just listened to wintering through Libro.fm and it's a great service. I really like it. So highly recommend we use it as well. Yeah. Well, this is another episode coming to an end of us, but coming right up, we have our interview with Bill Goldstein, who is the author of The World Broken Two, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, E.M. Forster, and The Year That Changed Literature. And Bill is also the, he has a spot on NBC New York every Sunday morning called Bill's Books where he introduces listeners, watchers, viewers, I should say, it's TV, to a variety of different books each episode. And he does read across all genres, which is great um, to see his recommendations. And I know his latest spot was the first part of his holiday gift giving guide. It gave me a good idea uh, to buy something for someone that I wasn't sure what to get. So nice. he's really good. His choices are great. Yeah, and he describes books very well. He also told us during our conversation that he's been doing that NBC spot for 20 years. Yeah, he just had his 20 year anniversary in October, which was a little anticlimactic. He said they probably would have done something a little more celebratory were it not, you know, a pandemic. But what an achievement. That's a long time. He also jokingly said he was afraid to point it out to them that they might be like, oh, maybe we don't want this guy to do this anymore. (laughs) Don't do that, NBC. (laughs) Yes, no, everybody loves him. So um, as do we, and we had quite a long conversation. We're not sure once Chris does her editing magic, how long this conversation will be, but boy, he has interviewed some amazingly interesting people. He's been around forever doing this and you know we just loved listening to him talk so we hope you enjoy and we wish you lots of happy Happy reading reading. and happy holidays too we're so excited today to be here with bill goldstein bill is no stranger to book lovers in new york and beyond his sunday morning tv segment on nbc new york called bill's books is beloved by many On the show, Bill recommends the best books in all genres. His reading is vast, and we don't know how he does it. (laughs) And his resume is beyond an English major's wildest dreams. A few places he's worked, Publishers Weekly, Scribner, the New York Times, where he founded their books website. He served as a consultant for the Metropolitan Opera. He's also interviewed so many of the literary and cultural movers and shakers in the various positions he's held. And he currently does a lot of moderating at literary and author events, and we are huge fangirls. (laughs) Bill received his PhD in English in 2010. His dissertation was on John Milton, who lived during the 17th century. But the first book Bill wrote after graduating wasn't about Milton. He fast forwarded to 1922 with 
The World Broken Two, Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, D.H. Lawrence, Ian Forster, and The Year That Changed Literature. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thank you so much. God, it's, it's so nice to hear all of that said uh, and not as a eulogy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. I mean, I, I, I feel better about my life already. I hope, I hope that lasts beyond the, the, the length of this Zoom call. But thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for being here, Bill. And we thought we would start by having you just give the listeners a brief synopsis of what your book is about. Well, thank you for having copies of it. I, I appreciate that. Yes, so it's a book that I wrote about the year 1922 and what those writers, Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot, D.H. Uh, Lawrence and E.M. Forster were doing in 1922. And the book came about in a very, well, I guess every book comes about in a surprising way, uh, but I was in graduate school, as, as you mentioned, I had worked at the New York Times already and was working at the New York Times. And then I had the idea uh, that I should uh, be reading more seriously. I mean, I was obviously doing a job surrounded by books and yet somehow I wanted to read more. And so it occurred to me to audit classes at uh, a nearby university, could I do that? And I actually found that you, were able to audit classes, at least then, I don't know what the rules are now, at uh, City University of New York Graduate Center. It was then uh, not yet in the building that it's on in now, which is the Altman's, old Altman's building on 34th and 5th. It was the Grace in the Grace building on 42nd Street, which happened to be right across the street from where the New York Times website was headquartered at the time. And so I took this class on Proust, uh, a year long seminar reading Proust in English. And it was, I began the class shortly after uh, reading The Hours, which had been published that summer. And so when I was reading Proust, I was thinking of Virginia Woolf and there were just things in it that made me think, oh, I wonder if Virginia Woolf ever read Proust. And then it turns out when I uh, did some research that she had never written an essay about Proust, but she had begun to read him in 1922. I saw that in her diaries and letters. And so I started to wonder about her in 1922. And then it turns out that E.M. Forster also began to read Proust in 1922, and they knew each other very well. And so I sort of was led from one author to another by what I consider a kind of shoots and ladders kind of way. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. And what happened after, so I had Virginia Woolf reading Proust, then I had E.M. Forster reading Proust, and there were also things that happened in Forster's life. He had been in India for, for a year uh, and was coming back. And the first people he saw when he came back in the spring of 1922 were Virginia and Leonard Wolf. And uh, Virginia wrote in her diary about seeing him, Forster was at a low ebb uh, for reasons I describe in my book, but uh, she described, she said something like Morgan, that was his uh, name, Edward Morgan Forster, everybody called him Morgan. Morgan was depressed to the point, I think, or the verge of inanition, which is such an unusual word. And then somehow uh, that stuck in my mind. And when I was doing more research about Forster, I found that D.H. Lawrence in 1915, so seven years before Virginia Woolf saw him and used that word, 
Lawrence met him and said that he thought, he wrote a letter that to someone that Forster was dying of inanition. So here was that very strange word used about E.M. Forster by two people seven years apart. I mean, it's, it's, I thought it was uncanny. So then I started to wonder what uh, D.H. Lawrence was doing in 1922. And also just to go back, uh, Virginia Woolf and T.S. Eliot were very close. Um, I guess now the term would be frenemies, but you know, they were <laughs> friends and, and rivals. And uh, T.S. Eliot finished and then published The Wasteland in 1922. So I became curious about what he was doing, uh, partly through his connection to Virginia Woolf. And so that's how the book came about. And what I tried to do was not so much make it literary criticism. I mean, although there is stuff about how Virginia Woolf came to write Mrs. Dalloway. The book grew out of a short story that she began in the spring of 1922, uh, shortly after reading Proust. So, so that brought me back to the hours, I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But uh, how did these people live through that year? Because a lot of it had to do with how depressed, oddly, all four of them were at the beginning of the year, and then how they made creative breakthroughs, personal breakthroughs that led them uh, in 1922 for Virginia Woolf to eventually write Mrs. Dalloway, T.S. Eliot to finish and publish The Wasteland. And then E.M. Forster had abandoned A Passage to India before the war, so uh, about eight years before, and he resumed it in 1922, finished it in 1924, but began his first real work on it in almost eight years in 1922, encouraged by Leonard Wolf um, and influenced by Proust. I mean, so what's interesting to me about writing a book like that, and I think it must happen to other authors, is that I knew there was a story to tell about these writers in 1922. And when I wrote the book proposal, I was obviously proposing to write a story uh, in which these four lives would be intertwined. And yes, I wrote that book, uh, the book that I had proposed years before, and yet the details all changed in, in some way. Um, and once I did research, I was very pleased to see that there was actually a lot to say about their interactions in 1922. But when I wrote the proposal, I didn't know or hadn't noticed when doing my research in diaries and letters uh, that in October 19, no, September 1922, sorry, uh, Virginia and Leonard Wolf invited T.S. Eliot and E.M. Forster to spend a weekend together with them at their country house. And so here was something to write about that I hadn't even had in the proposal, and yet it was the exact sort of kind of thing that I had wanted to show, the intertwining lives. And so there it was, one chapter grew you know, later, even though I had had no idea when I began the book that I was going to be able to to uh, write about that. So a book sort of comes together in surprising ways, which I think is also the story really of The World Broken Two and the writers that I'm writing about is they did not know at the beginning of 1922 what they would be doing later in the year, how they would get to work or back to work. Each of them, as I said, had felt depressed and at loose ends. And, and by the end of the year, they had at least found a path and 
T.S. Eliot had found great success because he was able to publish the book. But a year before The Wasteland was published, he had had a nervous breakdown and had to leave London and went on a you know, three-month rest cure and stuff, all of that unknown for, for his future. And uh, when I, I, I realize as I say that, that uh, I do not put myself in the same uh, category as Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forster, or D.H. Lawrence in finding a path to actually writing a book. I often was so uh, stymied while I was working and I would think, well, you know, it's interesting. I'm writing a book about people who can't write their books and I'm finding that I can't write my book. And yet at least they were Virginia Woolf, T.S. Eliot, E.M. Forster and D.H. Lawrence. And who am I to have these problems? You know, so, <laughs> so, uh, so it was, it, it seemed that the, the story of the book, I was reliving the story of the book uh, and I was glad at least by the end that I was able to come out on the other side just as they had. Yeah, right. that's great. Well, you've lived a very book-filled life, Bill. And in, in the back of the of your book, in the acknowledgments, you you note that you grew up in a in a house with a lot of books, and and you have your father's love of books. Can you talk about that, your childhood, and what kind of books you were surrounded with, and what kind of reader you were? Yes, I mean, well, I'm so flattered that you read the acknowledgments. My father was the real book lover and book collector and book buyer, but one thing about 1922 is that my mother was born in the year 1922. And I think that gave her pleasure that I was writing a book about that year. But at one point in the book, I was able to quote a letter that Virginia Woolf wrote in which she talks about uh, E.M. Forster. And it was a letter that she wrote on October 22nd, 1922, which was the day that my mother was born. So I was very pleased to be able to quote that, um, that letter um, as a kind of tribute to right. her. And she was uh, alive to, to read the dedication of the book uh, to her, uh, but also um, that. So my mother, to get to my father, my, my father died when I was nine. And my father, as I say, had been a big book collector, a book reader. Uh, and we grew up in a house that had floor to ceiling bookshelves in, in almost every room. And my mother later joked that, you know, if my father hadn't died, they were wondering you know, what they were going to, where they were going to next build bookshelves. Uh, <laughs> but, but my mother was a very faithful steward of my father's books um, so that, I mean, she left them as they were. And then I started buying my own books when I was about 15. And even when my mother sold that house that I grew up in, in Brooklyn and moved to her apartment, she took all the books with her and built floor to ceiling bookshelves in her apartment along the wall from the entryway to you know the other side of the apartment. I grew up surrounded by my father's books and I spent a lot of time, uh, I have a kind of photographic memory for shelves uh, and spent a lot of time looking at the books behind the books because there were two levels. I mean, they were, there was the books and then the books behind the books, because that was one way of dealing with the space. And so I read a lot of my father's books uh, and just, I think, feel comfortable when I'm in a room that has a lot of books in them. My father, when I say he was a book collector, bought the books of his contemporaries. I mean, he didn't buy rare books. He started buying books when he was in his teens in the 30s, so in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, and he died 
1969. Um, so I have my father's copy of uh, Catch-22, which is a, a really good condition first edition. And, um, and when I went to work at Publishers Weekly, I interviewed Joseph Heller. And so I brought the book with me and, and, and so he was able to sign it. And when I interviewed Norman Mailer, I brought my father's copies of Norman Mailer's books, you know, for him to sign. So those are the books that I grew up surrounded by. One of the books my father had was the first edition, the Olympia Press edition of Nabokov's Lolita. Um, and I was really pleased when a friend of mine who was a curator at the New York Public Library, this, is, this must be 20 years ago now, they were doing a Nabokov exhibit because they own Nabokov's papers. And so they were putting on display manuscripts and drafts and things like that. And they were going to display with them uh, first editions of the books of Nabokov's that they referenced, but they didn't have a first edition of Lolita, the Olympia Press edition, which was published a couple of years before the American one. And so they borrowed my copy, which was my father's copy. So uh, it said on the display card you know, that, that it had been my father's book. I mean, his name was Harden, H-A-R-D-E-N. So I was very pleased you know, that, that all these many years later, uh, you know, my father's collection, it was yeah, a small right. tribute to my father's book collecting. And so I grew up with those books and um, my father often in the books, he, he would make, have newspaper clippings, things like that. And there were many cutouts or clippings from Publishers Weekly. Uh, at one point when I was in my teens, I asked my mother what Publishers Weekly was. And so she told me it was the trade journal, et cetera. Um, and so my mother went to a bookstore and borrowed a copy of Publishers Weekly from them so that she could show it to me. Yeah. Um, and so she brought it home. When I turned 16, my mother gave me a subscription to Publishers Weekly as my birthday present. And so I read Publishers Weekly for five years before I actually then went to work there um, as a summer intern. Uh, and that's how I got my job at Publishers Weekly as I was reading it every week. One of the things we really admire, Bill, is um, th is that you get to interview quite a, a lot of authors. And we were wondering how you prepare for those interviews. And also if you've ever been somewhat starstruck or, you know, felt like you were fanning over someone that it was <laughs> distracting from your ability to ask questions. Well, yes. I mean, I have, have been, and, uh, it's, it, it was easier to hide that when I was just doing interviews in print. I mean, you know, for publishers, because obviously you have whatever conversation you're having and then you go away and you use the quotes and you uh, are only mortified while you're transcribing it to know that your own question was going on too long or you, you were too uh, obsequious or something like that or too much of, of an excited you know, fan person. So it's easier to hide that, as I say, when you're doing it for print um, publications. It's harder if you're doing it on stage at a Barnes and Noble. Well, something happened when I was about 24. I mean, so I, I was... 
had been doing author interviews for Publishers Weekly for a couple of years by that point. And I was going to interview Gore Vidal, who was publishing that year, was publishing Lincoln. And I prepared so intensely. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I read every single one of his books, but I read them so carefully. I mean, and most of his books and came armed with all of these questions. And I had to meet him at the Plaza Hotel. Uh, he lived in Italy most of the year. And so I got there and a lot of times when you're interviewing an author, the time expands. I mean, you know, maybe you were supposed to be there for an hour or two, but you know, if you're at their house or if you're meeting them in an office, it just can go on unless they actually have something else to do. And a lot of times the conversations will flow so naturally that you do spend more time than necessarily programmed. But here he was very famous, obviously, at that point. And because he was from coming from Italy, I mean, was only there briefly, he had one interview after another, including TV interviews. So the time was very specific. And I had done all of this preparation. And I remember leaving the interview completely deflated by his, I mean, he was perfectly nice, and uh, but I felt like there was some level of engagement in the conversation that had not taken place. I left deflated partly because I had prepared so intensely and also because each question I asked, he was such a performer, and I mean that as a compliment, he knew really what would work in print, but he wasn't really responding to my questions per se. And although he answered them. Um, and so I left, as I say, deflated and felt like oh, I'm never going to prepare this much again uh, because I, what a waste of time for this hour. And then when I wrote up the interview, that's when I realized, oh, he knew what he was doing. Did it matter that it was me asking the questions? I don't know, but it certainly turned out to be a piece I was happy with and I can still remember it as many years ago as it was. So that was a time when I was so enthusiastic and then so disappointed. And so I, I don't know that it still you know, controls my reaction you know, when I'm, I'm meeting an author, but I have found that if you are knowledgeable about a person's work, or have a feeling for a person's work, then they are responsive. I'm trying to think of a time where I, I guess, I, I guess I've been very lucky, as I say, some of the authors that I did love the most or have loved the most, I got to interview when I was very young. I, I, I'm thinking of one person in particular, well, two people in particular who I think were so surprised by my comparative youth, and they were writers who I idolized and still do, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin and Robert Caro, uh, coincidentally or not, uh, both biographers of Lyndon Johnson. Um, I interviewed Robert Caro when the second, the first volume, excuse me, of his Lyndon Johnson book, The Path to Power, was published in paperback. And so I was 23 and I went to his office and um, 
interviewed him uh, about the book and obviously I had read it and I'd read The Power Broker and um, I, I don't know that it's still on his website, but uh, he, at least until recently, I mean, I don't keep checking it, but had, had reprinted that interview from all of those years ago on his website. And uh, we uh, you know, became friendly. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say we're you know, by no means you know, close friends or even, you know, it's not like we're hanging out, but I then interviewed him uh, for my segment, NBC segment, when mm -hmm. the most recent volume of his Lyndon Johnson uh, book, The Passage to Power um, was published. And uh, so that was uh, amazing. I mean, I last interviewed him you know, before that in, in a different medium. So that, that was wonderful. And Doris Goodwin, uh, in 1986, Doris was working on the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys. And by now she had married Richard Goodwin and was, was known as Doris Kearns Goodwin. But uh, this book was still in the works. And so Joanne suggested, well, if you're interested in this, why don't we do a new series? Publishers Weekly hadn't done this before. They had always interviewed authors when the book was being published. Uh, and we invented a series called Writers at Work. And so I went up to uh, Concord, Massachusetts, which is where she lived, and interviewed her about her work in progress. And that to me was the most amazing thing of all. I mean, even having interviewed Robert Caro a few years before that, uh, I could not believe that uh, I was now interviewing this author whose previous book, the Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream, I had really loved. And I couldn't believe that here about 10 years later, I was in her house interviewing <laughs> her. Awesome. Yeah. That's and, a great story. Uh, and we uh, became friendly. I mean, I, I actually, I mean, she had sent me the, the pages and it was a manuscript, a handwritten manuscript. And she sent me a Xerox, I guess, of it um, in loose leaf notebooks to read. And we got talking about the book and I ended up uh, helping her edit it. Um, and she wrote an acknowledgement to me in the Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys when it was published. And I could not believe, as I said, that I was in her house. I mean, after having been uh, a fan of this book when I was in high school. But now I couldn't believe that I, I had been this admirer of her first book and I was in the acknowledgements to her <laughs> second book. I mean, it was her next book. And I remember talking about it in therapy. I mean, you know, I was so amazed <laughs> by this. And I, all these years ago, I mean, people can check to see what year it was published. I don't want to say, but um, she wrote to Bill Goldstein, I give my thanks for his careful reading of the manuscript and for his wise suggestions. And to me, that still is greater almost than any byline I've ever had. I think I was more excited about that than I was even about having my own book published. <laughs> that's um, beautiful. It? It's so funny. Yeah, we, are, we book people. It's just, uh, it doesn't take much for us to, you know, just uh, be overwhelmed by, uh, by authors. I feel that way if I'm ever in the presence of an author. Well, and if you look at the, the back of War Broken 2, Doris uh, read yeah. and gave me a blurb for it. Yes, and I, I think that. really did actually read the book. Um, right. But um, I have right on always the top, kept, right there. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. kept in touch with her over 
the years. And so for each of her books, I've interviewed her somewhere or other. And uh, I did a live event with her at Columbia University when Team of Rivals was published. And then uh, when The Bully Pulpit was published, I interviewed her at Barnes and Noble uh, at Union Square. And when her book Leadership was published, uh, I guess two years ago, I interviewed her at Barnes and Noble Union Square. And I also interviewed her on my segment uh, for The Bully Pulpit. So, uh, I mean, that, it's, it's just sort of amazing to me. I mean, that that's, that Doris Kearns Goodwin, who I first read when I was in high school, uh, has been, uh, you know, a mainstay yeah, yeah. of my career um, in, in that she, way. Yeah. And amazing. You know, she's just a generous and, and wonderful person. Speaking of biographers and writers at work, um, we did have a listener, Kate, who wanted to ask about your writing routine. Could you talk a little bit about your writing routine and your new project? Yes, thank you for asking about that. I mean, I, I wish I could say that I really had a routine. <laughs> I, I do have, you know, I, I somehow have made it work. Yes, I'm writing a biography now of Larry Kramer, the AIDS activist and writer. He wrote uh, the play, The Normal Heart. That's probably his most famous work. He also wrote three novels, uh, the most recent of which was a two volume work called The American People, which the first volume of it was published in 2015. And then the second volume, the concluding volume was published in January of this year, 2020. And then Larry died in May um, at the age of 84. Uh, so I'm writing a biography of him and I'm not yet completely at the writing stage. So that's always a wonderful, it's always more fun to research <laughs> a book um, uh, than it is to write it. I mean, even though while you're researching, you're obviously thinking about the writing of it. And uh, while you're writing it, you're thinking, oh, I should have done more research or why do I not know that? <laughs> uh, or I should have done less research and I, it wouldn't be so hard if I only forgot what I knew. Uh, I could you know, write the book so much more easily. So uh, in terms of the the research, uh, I, I found that going to a library for me is wonderful. I mean, to, to do the archival research. I mean, I had to do some archival research for the dissertation that I wrote and uh, I had to go to London to do it. I was, it, part of my book was about theatrical adaptations of Milton and I went to the British Library collection about the theater to read the papers of Michael Redgrave, who had done a production of one of Milton's uh, plays, Samson Agonistes. And so I did the archival research there. And because I was in London and I was only there for a few days, I surprised myself that I would get there. I mean, it didn't surprise me that I got there early in the morning. I mean, I went first thing because I knew I had to get through all of this stuff in three or four days. What surprised me and this has remained true all these years later, is when I'm at these libraries and I'm visiting someplace, I often am able to make it all day without taking a break for lunch. Not that you'd wanna do that every day or your whole life, but you know that you have this amount to get through in the week that you're there, say. And I have found that I have this great stamina to be at the library at nine and then stay till it closes. So that's a routine while I'm researching. And even while I've been working on the Larry Kramer book, 
I was able to do that at the Beinecke. Uh, his papers are at Yale. He went to Yale, graduated in 1957. Uh, until the pandemic, I was able to go to the Beinecke and not, uh, I mean, it's much closer to get from New York to New Haven. I didn't, uh, I didn't deny myself lunch every day, but uh, you know, sometimes I would get there early in the morning and stay till, till seven and then just have dinner because I would stay at a hotel. So that's a kind of focus um, that for me is wonderful. I mean, I have that ability to focus. I do not have that ability when I'm writing to sit endlessly or you know, a day and not have lunch uh, and, just, and just keep writing. Uh, occasionally I do, like if I have a, a deadline, I mean, I worked at Publishers Weekly, I worked at the New York Times, I'm very deadline oriented and that's not a good thing when you are writing a book because you cannot, mm -hmm work writing a book close to deadline. You can meet deadlines, but obviously you can't write a book chapter, you can't write a book on deadline. And so it has taken a fair amount of practice to keep those deadlines in mind, but not be focused on them and postpone my work until I am near them. And so when I was writing The World Broken Two, I, I mean, I did not have the luxury of working full-time on it. I had other jobs. And so what I found was very helpful is I would work in the morning on the book and then in the afternoon do the other things that I had to do. And that is harder to maintain. I mean, obviously in the age of email, I mean, because one, you cannot check it, but, you know, even the jobs that I had where I was only working for them in the afternoon, you know, they're still getting in touch with you in the morning and sure. you know, may yeah. expect a response. But I try to divide the day at least that way. In the pandemic, I mean, since, you know, the Beinecke, for example, is closed to outside researchers now, at least until May of 2021 at the earliest. So it'll have been well over a year since I was last there you know, when I'm able to go. And the New York Public Library, where I also did a lot of research. I mean, Larry Kramer was the co-founder of GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and also one of the uh, founders of, of ACT UP. Uh, you know, his, a speech that he gave in 1987 gave rise to ACT UP. Papers of ACT UP and GMHC, as, as well as other LGBT leaders, writers, are at the New York Public Library, where I spent a lot of time researching last year, but of course they closed in March too. And, um, and so I haven't been able to do more research uh, there. So since the pandemic, my routine has been to, I did a lot of interviews uh, for the book. I should also say that uh, I got to spend a lot of time with Larry before he died, interviewed him for you know many dozens, dozens of hours. And so at least as a biographer, I didn't have regrets that, oh, I should have spent more time with Larry while he was right. here. I mean, there, there are still a million questions that I would have liked to have asked him. And then, of course, when you interview other people or do more research, there's more that you think, well, did you really think this? Or what did you think of that? Or why did you do this? And so that is still a cause for regret, but at least... I didn't have regrets like, oh, well, I didn't really get a good sense of who Larry was. That I certainly did um, and got a sense in the time we spent together of what mattered to him, uh, what were the kinds of things he remembered, what were the things that, you know, he was famous for so long. Uh, one of the problems 
when you're asking people like Larry, I mean, and Larry's not the only one, I mean, this is about the famous things that they did. Uh, they've talked about these things so much, like the founding of ACT UP or the founding of GMHC or the early AIDS years, that it has settled into a kind of set narrative that right. is a true story. It's not invented. I mean, it's not fake, but it's limited because it's the story they've been telling for so long. And often, uh, I mean, this is also true of people I've interviewed about Larry. And one of the things that's great about doing the research is Larry saved everything. Uh, I have joked uh, that he, uh, I know he bought an electric pencil sharpener in the spring of 1974 because the manual is there and the receipt. <laughs> um, so Larry saved everything. And so I could often ask him, well, what about this? And then it would spark new memories. I mean, and mm -hmm. that brings me back to actually Doris Kearns Goodwin, because when I did that interview with her about writers at work in that series, I asked her about interviewing Rose Kennedy, who was alive at that time. And in, in the sense of like, well, how do you ask Rose Kennedy about the assassinations of her sons? I mean, how do you ask her something that she either hasn't answered a million times or how do you probe those questions? I mean, you know, it's, and Dara said something that I've never forgotten. She said that what she tries to do when she's interviewing someone like that is that the research she's done is sort of like a gift to that person because she'll ask them, well, you know, in, I mean, Rose Kennedy, you know, whatever the example was, you know, in 1916, when you were a, a, a teenager or whatever, and your father, I mean, who was the mayor of Boston, would show her the letter or, you know, quote to her the letter or something like that. And then that was like a gift to the person to be reminded mm. of that. And so there, there was an exchange and that on the one hand, Doris was doing research, but also she wasn't just asking questions. She was provoking memories in that way. And it seemed like a magical thing. And I, I didn't remember it. Oh, I'm going to put that to use when I write my own books, but I have thought of that often while doing interviews about Larry. Uh, I realize I've come far afield from talking about any kind of routine, uh, which was the, the question. Well, we ha I have another question for you, and this should probably be our last because okay. we've really used a lot of your time. When you uh, film, record Bill's books, you sit in front of these beautiful bookcases when you're at home. And I don't know if you've seen in the New York Times lately, um, because folks are, are having all these interviews yeah. in, on Zoom, they're doing this fun little thing where they highlight, you know, three of the books behind yeah. these famous people's heads and tell us what they are. Do you spend time changing your shelves? Are they always the same? How do you decide where to, which books to sit in front of? Well, I, thank you. Yes, the, the bookshelves actually are very similar to the bookshelves I grew up with. And uh, when I moved into this apartment, uh, my mother as a housewarming present gave me the money to build floor to ceiling bookshelves in our living room. And so there are two walls of books uh, in our living room and the shelves look very much like the ones I grew up with, I'm including having at the top, you know, lights that go around the, you know, the top of the bookshelves. And once I began filming the segment at home, 
by Mother's Day, that had been, I guess, two months after I had started filming at home. And some viewers had written to me and said nice things about my bookshelves and and, and even my husband, I mean, who uh, works in the theater, you know, he would have all these Zoom meetings um, uh, in front of the bookshelves. I mean, because uh, that's the backdrop in the living room. And then people would ask him about the bookshelves and say how lovely they were. And so he said, oh, my God, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, because, of course, his goal has been to have, you know, fewer books in the apartment. <laughs> like, here, the Zoom era has begun and people are complimenting him on our bookshelf. <laughs> When Mother's Day came around, because of these compliments I, I got, in addition to doing Mother's Day suggestions of reading, I thanked my mother. I mean, she died in 2019 at 96, so she lived a good long life. But I paid tribute to her and said about the bookshelves, since people had complimented me, that these were very much like the bookshelves I had grown up with, and I thanked my mother for giving them to me. And uh, what I did is I showed a picture of me at the age of three sitting on my brother's lap with the bookshelves behind <laughs> us, and you could see that they were basically exactly the same. Kind of so uh, in terms of the actual backdrop, we did neaten up the shelves a little bit because I mean, they're not quite higgledy-piggledy. I mean, they're somewhat organized, but they were better organized 20 years ago than they are now. Um, but I would lie books down on their side, you know, et cetera. And Blake, that's my husband, you know, was not always pleased with that look anyway. So we have taken off a number of the books that were lying on the side uh, just so that they're more uh, vertical. And so the books that are behind me just happen to be where in our apartment it's best to sit in terms of the light and moving the TV to the side. I mean, you know, we don't have yeah. you know endless <laughs> amounts of space. And so I could probably find new places to film, but I actually just sort of know now the routine of moving the TV this way, uh, putting the my iPad at a certain place uh, with a certain number of books beneath it uh, to lift it up to the right level. Even in that way, coincidence uh, plays a wonderful role in life. In May, I was asked to moderate a Zoom talk for a, a group. Uh, it, was, it was going to be a talk with two actors who were in the Broadway production of To Kill a Mockingbird. And to talk about the play, uh, obviously it was, uh, it was in May, there was a lot of about, you know, Black Lives Matter, social justice. I mean, and of course, nobody was performing the play. So it was a little bit attenuated. I mean, we we're talking about the importance of this play at this moment, but it was not being performed. But I did the talk and the actors were wonderful and the group was wonderful. And behind me, uh, not behind me now, but uh, behind me on the shelf was the copy of to Kill a Mockingbird that I had from my father's library. Um, and I had not planned that, but that's just where, you know, we had yeah. set things up. So at a certain point when we were talking about the actual book, I thought, oh, and I reached behind <laughs> me and I took the book off the shelf. And, you know, unfortunately it's not a first edition, but it's printing from, you know, 1960 uh, when the book was published. And so I showed the book. My father would often write his and my mother's name inside mm. books, so I was able to show them that. And you know, a couple of times I've been able to show my father's books on the air or something like that. And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I did a Black History Month segment 
about a Library of America volume published uh, the two novels by Anne Petrie, who wrote Oh, yeah. a book called The Street. I mean, yeah. That was her first novel and a famous novel. Yeah. And it was the first novel by an African-American to sell a million copies. And I had my father's copy of that book, which I had read oh. in high school. And it's a first edition with the jacket. And so I brought it to the studio. That's when I was doing things live still. And, um, and when I made that remark about uh, it was the first novel by an African-American to sell a million copies, I was able to say. And my father was one of the people who bought right. them. Awesome. And here is his yeah. first edition. And then we showed, you know, his name in inside it. Um, mm. so, That's fantastic. I love that novel. And I, I just, at the top of my stack right now is The Country Place, her second novel. I'm reading that next. I, oh, I haven't, I haven't read another book by her. Uh, I mean, that's a goal because I really yeah. loved that book. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, once again, I mean, it's about my father and his love of books and how mm -hmm. it's shaped everything I've done. Uh, but, um, the books behind me, some of them are his, his books. Um, That's and, amazing. And you know, um, looking at your book and reading some of the reviews and reviewers talked a lot about the fact that your book is really a, about writers suffering from writer's block and trying to get through this year of 1922. And um, here we are in 2020. I was amazed by the parallel. Uh, Chris and I follow a lot of authors. We talk to a lot of authors. There's a lot of pressure on people to be very productive in this pandemic because certainly there's nothing else for them to do, you know, and uh, that's not, it's not a simple task. So we wish you really great yes. luck as you oh, dig into the writing you. process yes. on you your so next much. book. Oh, yeah. thank you. This, this has really been a wonderful conversation. And one of the things that surprised me, I mean, when uh, I, I talked about my book and uh, but about uh, Mrs. Dalloway, I taught a course uh, during the pandemic uh, on Mrs. Dalloway and A Passage to India, the, the two books that are covered in, in my book. I taught a class at the 92nd Street Y. When I say at, it was at home. Mm -hmm. And of course, rereading Mrs. Dalloway now, uh, uh, it was written uh, while Virginia Woolf uh, was, or uh, Virginia Woolf in 1922 had a very bad case of the flu. Right. And there was a virulent yeah. flu in London and Europe in 1922 that people feared was uh, not that it was uh, the, the Spanish flu, but it was, a, they feared that this was going to be a pandemic on the scale of that. It, it turned out to be a severe flu, but not that. And yet, of course, uh, when I was writing my book, I mean, which was published in 2017, uh, there was no reason to focus on that. I mean, I did talk about the flu yeah. and the fear of the flu, yeah. but, uh, now it's more relevant than ever. I mean, right. just how mm -hmm. fearful people can be of illness and what happens. I mean, when Virginia Woolf has all these symptoms that are uh, uh, mysterious to her doctors. I mean, they don't, they're not able to really figure out what is going on and it lingers for months and months and months and months. And uh, it affects her heart. It affects her breathing, obviously. And that fear of things was was uh, was sort of clear in her diaries, but abstract to me as a writer. Now those feelings are not abstract to yeah. me at all. Yeah. 
It's yeah. going to be interesting to see how the pandemic affects writers, you know, in the years to come with their writing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This has just been fascinating to hear about your experiences and, and what you're doing now. We really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm so grateful that you asked me to do it. I had a wonderful time talking with you and um, I'd be happy to do it again. I mean, you know, when, when, uh, when there's new thing, when there are new things to, to talk about, but uh, I'm grateful for the invitation and thank you for taking uh, the time with me. I'm, I'm, I'm very flattered and grateful. We appreciate it. And we're hopeful we have seen you in person at the Hachette Book Club brunch. Oh, yeah. Virtually <laughs> this year. We will all have our fingers crossed that in 2021, we can see each other in person again. Oh, I hope so. I know, I know Karen Torres is going to make it happen if <laughs> she can possibly do yes, it. Um, indeed. And I, I have uh, as much faith in uh, Karen Torres as I do in Dr. Fauci. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.